The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Today FM. It all happens here. Now, her first book, Don't Touch My Hair, was an absolute critical and commercial success. And she has a second book, What White People Can Do Next, from Allyship to Coalition. So I'm delighted that Emma DeBeery joins us here on The Last Word Culture Club today. Emma, thank you very much for taking the time to join us. You're so welcome. How are you? I'm very good. Okay, well, let's get into your choices. And we always start, and we'll talk a little bit about your writing a little bit later, but Mm -hmm. we always start with people's musical first impressions. And you've picked out Madonna for us as the first thing that you remember buying her album, Madonna. Why was that? Yeah. Yeah. So do you know what? Like now, like I I am not a Madonna fan at all, (laughs) but I have to um, admit that like when I was a kid, I was I had a period from maybe about like eight years old to 10 years old where I was like obsessed with Madonna. Like I just absolutely loved her. And um, yeah, I think like her first two albums were just I just listened to them like all the time. And um, the first album I ever bought was um, Madonna and the album is named Madonna. It's her first her first album. And um, yeah, this was like back in the day. So it was like a vinyl. It was like an LP for the first one that I remember buying. What was it about Madonna? Was it the music or was (laughs) it the image and the videos at the time? Because she was very much of the MTV generation. Yeah, completely. Yeah, I just I think I just thought she was like such a badass. Like I just thought she was like so glamorous, but like like she was really punky and she just seemed really she just seemed like really unconventional and really like, I just, I just thought she, I just thought she seemed so cool, which I don't at all now. But that's as, what I was just about to ask you about. What, what went wrong? How did Madonna lose you? <laughs> I, I grew up and I think um, I took inspiration from other places. Um, you know, at the end of the day, she's just like a, a really, really mainstream artist. And that isn't, I don't tend to really be into kind of mainstream counterculturalness if the two can even exist so I think like when I got a bit older yeah I, I, I definitely um, found inspiration elsewhere but certainly as a, as, as a child she just seems so cool to me. Because I'm, I'd imagine for a slightly older generation of women that they saw Madonna as a bit of a trailblazer that she was a sort of an emancipated strong woman particularly in control of her own sexuality that doesn't resonate with you does it? Well, I think she definitely is those, she definitely is those things. But in terms of being like a role model for me, it's not, yeah, I don't know. It's not necessarily where I, yeah, I think where I would, I would find my, where I'd find my inspiration. There's people kind of doing similar, you know, women, like all the, all the things that you've just described. There's Josephine Baker, like a black American woman doing that hundred years previously. So I think when I learned about other, when I learned about other, um, uh, kind of performers or expanded my repertoire beyond like you know the very mainstream I saw that there were other people that I yeah probably found had done what had done what Madonna had done but in more difficult circumstances and like in earlier periods so yeah let's hear a little bit from that first album by Madonna here's one of her classic tracks Holiday if we took a holiday It would be, it would be so nice. Everybody 
So Emma, would you not dance to that if it came <laughs> on if you were out clubbing? <laughs> Uh, I was dancing to it now, sitting like in a podcast room. Um, so yeah, it's still definitely like it's still definitely like a bop, and um, I haven't heard it in a while. But yeah, I definitely, yeah, I definitely would have a little a little bookie to it for sure. Okay, it's so tell us true. What sort of music do you listen to now? So I listen to like a very wide, wide range of music. I think like over over my whole life, I've always been really into music. When I was younger. I guess I was more, I'd be into a specific genre of music. I'd be into a specific scene and that would determine, you know, not only what I listened to, but like the way I dressed, the way I wore my hair, who I hung out with, where I, like where I went, um, you know, all these kind of like different subcultures that I've kind of been into like throughout my kind of teens and twenties. And I think then by the time I kind of hit my thirties, I got to a place where I just started kind of listening to all of the different types of music that I'd ever been into um and I was like oh I can actually I can actually enjoy like lots of different genres of music and I don't have to be like oh I only listen to this type of music I only listen to that type of music and that kind of determines my identity and I started to just be able to like appreciate you know all of these different genres simultaneously and I think now yeah I have such eclectic music tastes like I listen to everything from blues like delta blues to like Irish trad to like afro beats to trap music r&b but i think with the exception of drum and bass i just really love music your choice is really interesting we asked you for a favorite album or favorite band or artist you picked out one thing for us and it's a really interesting choice christy moore and uh, the prosperous album now why did you mm-hmm. select that one i found that question like really really difficult i was like my favorite album I would feel like um, I can't even hardly choose my favourite genre, let alone narrow it down to an album. Um, I feel like disloyal to all of the music I love. But I chose that one because it's just been enduring. You know, it's something that I that I would have first heard when I was um, like kind of from my earliest memories. And I still I still love them and I still love that album now. So it's like, you know, something that I've, kind of like all, always always been into and um i just think like there's so there's so many different moods on the album um there's songs like james Connolly, which is just like one of my one of my all-time favorite songs um i love the i just love the 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 the, the like the politics and like what it stands for but also just like how beautiful so much of it is then like loads of it's just good crack as well you know it's just like it's just really like really fun as well. I just think it's yeah, the raggle raggle taggle gypsy, that's a song. It's probably one of the first songs I ever learned. Um that my kids absolutely love as well. So yeah, just like really like really long mem long memories and something that yeah, I just have a great deal of affection for. Let's hear a little bit of the track you mentioned, James Connolly. Where oh where is our James Connolly? Where, oh, where is that gallant man? He's gone to organise the union. Than to working men, they might yet be free. Then who, then who will lead the van? Then who, then who will lead the van? 
Who bought our James Connolly, the hero of the working man? Who will carry high the burden flank? Who will carry high the burden flank? Who bought our James Connolly? Couldn't carry high the burden flank. Because I read you sort of grew up learning that as a child, which at your mother's knee effectively while you were living for a while in the United States. Yeah, so my mum taught me like a lot of um like a lot of Irish music and like poetry, like from from like from a young age. So um a lot of the songs on that album definitely, yeah. Okay, what about gigs? I presume you've been to loads of gigs and gigs can often stand out not just because of the brilliance of the music, but it can often be because of the people that you're with or the circumstances. What have you gone for? So, yeah, I went. So again, I guess this this demonstrates the variety um, of music that um, that I'm into or that I've been into. But in my teens, I was really into this um, like American, like R&B boy band called Drew Hill. And yeah, just like late 90s, I'd first moved to London, probably like my first year of university. There was like a really um, kind of like thriving um, like hip hop and R&B scene in London in the late 90s that um, was very different to any type of like clubbing experience um, or scene that I scenes that I'd been involved in, like in in Ireland as a teenager. And I was just thoroughly enjoying myself and um in that in that year drew hill came over like a couple of times and um one of their one of their concerts in god somewhere there's i think in hammersmith or somewhere a venue that's i think closed down but um yeah it was just it was just brilliant like it really it it really really stands out in my in my memory just for I think when it was in my life and like just what an exciting what an exciting kind of time it was and um just the 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 I guess the quality of the performance as well just like the showman's showmanship the singing like how good their voices were um, just yeah, how how kind of hype the whole thing was, and it was a long time ago now, but I still remember it very clearly. Well, we have a little bit of True Hill to play. It's not from a live concert; it's actually from an appearance on Top of the Pops. This is these <laughs> are the times. <laughs> Definitely very different from Christy Moore, anyway. <laughs> you know. <laughs> um, oh my God! But I thoroughly enjoyed that, and I know I was just saying that um, I don't really listen to them anymore. I think I need to like reassess that. I need to pop that one on 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 an old playlist there. 
I really enjoyed that. That actually happens with guests on the Culture Club. Maybe for them, they go back and end up listening to music they haven't heard for years. But it also brings a lot of us, I think, to music that we might have forgotten about that was sort of comfort music of the past. Do you go back and go to old music or do you tend to look out for new things all the time? So I used to be like very like cutting edge, you know, and very like aware of um, very aware of new music. But as I get older, I find myself like more and more just listening to old music. And it's not even necessarily music. It might be old music, but it might be new to me. Um, I've started like listening to like a lot of Delta blues, which, um, you know, is kind of from like the early 1900s um so yeah I feel like as as I get older I I kind of stop (laughs) engaging more and more with um with like current music I guess the only kind of current music or the current music that I do kind of listen to is like trap like a type of hip-hop that like comes out of Atlanta well it started in Atlanta but now it's just kind of it's global um but yeah yeah usually I, I listen to kind of older music Emma DeBerry, stay with us. I need to take a quick break. We'll be back with the second part of the Culture Club after this. Welcome back. You're listening to the Culture Club here on The Last Word of Today FM. Emma DeBerry is with us today, author of Don't Touch My Hair and Other Things. Uh, Emma, let's get to books, actually, because I'd imagine if you found it difficult to narrow down to favourite artists when it came to music, it must be very difficult for you when it comes to (laughs) books, is it? It's virtually impossible. Like, it's so hard. Um, I don't think I... Did I give my favourite book or did I give my favourite author? Well, you did. But I tell you what, you gave us an author, a favourite author in Toni Morrison. So talk to us about her first and then go into other writers. Okay. So, again, like, I've read voraciously from like a very very young age I find it very difficult to say who my favorite writer is and again I feel like guilty about all the people that I don't name but I would say Toni Morrison just because I've read so many of her books have 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 resonated with me and she's such a kind of uniquely singular voice um and I feel that like when the first book of hers that I ever read, which I believe was Song of Solomon, probably again, I was probably about 19 or 20. And I was just like, wow. I was just like, this is like so infused with, with magic. Um, Like I just, I just felt like it was, um, I don't know, her writing was almost like, you know, like an incantation, like a spell, like really tapping in to some like deeply kind of like, or tapping into some kind of deeply like spiritual force. And um, my uh, degree was in history and African studies. And she's, um, she's black American. But when I was reading her writing, I was like, this is really making me think about lots of stuff that I'm studying and learning about in African studies about, you know, like ancestral, like about ancestral spirits and um, time being kind of cyclical rather than, rather than linear. And um, yeah, I think the, the things that she does with time in her writing are really, really interesting. And I write quite a bit about time myself. So she's also been, she's, she's also been very, like, I think, inspiring you know to my to to my own writing and I think to kind of be more daring in my own writing yeah my own writing style from, we have an extract from the audiobook of Beloved 
Uh, and in this extract, Seth discusses the death of her eldest daughter, who was eight years, who died eight years prior to when the book is set. Ten minutes, he said. You got ten minutes. I'll do it for free. Ten minutes for seven letters. With another ten, could she have gotten dearly too? She had not thought to ask him, and it bothered her still that it might have been possible that for twenty minutes, a half hour, say, she could have had the whole thing, every word she heard the preacher say at the funeral, and all there was to say, surely, engraved on her baby's headstone. Dearly beloved. But what she got, settled for, was the one word that mattered. She thought it would be enough, rutting among the headstones with the engraver, his young son looking on, the anger in his face so old, the appetite in it quite new. That should certainly be enough. Enough to answer one more preacher, one more abolitionist, and a town full of disgust. Okay, what else would you read, Emma? Um, I guess I is, it, is it all fiction that you read or do you read non-fiction as well, given that you write non-fiction? Yeah, so my, fiction is very much my first love. Um, I read, like I read a lot of fiction, um, but at the moment I probably read more non-fiction because um, I'm like in the process of finishing my <laughs> ongoing PhD. Um, so that like requires, you know, like a lot of, uh, yeah, a lot a lot of reading, obviously. And I, I also am quite into theory. Um, I Yeah, I, I read a lot of kind of like critical kind of studies and theory. So um, probably my, some of my, my favorite nonfiction writing is writing that is, I guess like academic writing and something that's called like the, the, the black radical tradition. Um, people like Fred Moten, um, you know, who's, who's somebody whose work I reference a lot in my own in my own writing. Um, so, yeah, I would read a lot of nonfiction as well, but I, I tend to prefer nonfiction written by by academics. I, I guess when they're not necessarily writing academic texts, uh, they're writing for, you know, just a mainstream audience. But I, I usually like the, the rigor that is, is brought um, by, by people that have an academic background. Although with that being said, I can think of lots of nonfiction that I love where the, the people aren't academic. So yeah, it depends on the book itself. What's your PhD in? Mm, it's so, the, the discipline is like sociology and it's looking at the construction of, of, of racial categories, like why they, why they were constructed, what kind of work they serve to do. And um, yeah, it's kind of like a, an, an analysis of the of, of, of racial categories. I know you're doing a podcast series at the moment called Driving Progress, but your own books, particularly Don't Touch My Hair, do you think did that inc- improve progress in attitudes in Ireland and Britain towards the issues of race? Um, you know, a lot of people have um, told me that it, you know, it, it had an impact on them or in the environment that that they were in. I know here in the UK, um, there was a school, one school in particular, um, that changed its like uniform policy um, around around hair because a lot of exclusions from hair, a lot of exclusions from school for um, children of African descent whose hair was seen as not conforming to the 
the uniform policy, but then the uniform policies didn't kind of reflect the way our hair grows from our heads. So it would be difficult to make your hair conform to a policy that is created kind of without you in mind. So um, that school like changed their uniform policy as a result of, you know, the the head having read the book. And then um, I know there was also a change in the army uniform policy as well. Um, A a campaign was led by um, uh, by a a soldier, Um, but she contacted me and she said that... um, she had been really kind of inspired to start her like campaigning through reading the book and the book kind of like, you know, helped her um, kind of, yeah, kind of helped, helped her very much in that work. So I, I've had quite a lot of people, you know, kind of tell me things, tell me things like that, which is like, like in- incredible for me to hear. So yeah, <laughs> I'm really I, happy I'm that it has that impact. What about back here in Ireland though? Because from what you've written previously, what has struck me is that you were the victim of casual almost racism in Ireland maybe based in ignorance but it did strike me that an awful lot of time Irish people can be sort of self-satisfied in saying that we don't engage or indulge in racism perhaps while not actually understanding that we do um yeah I think that would that would have been quite akin to um what I would have experienced growing up um I find though that like um the kind of willingness to talk about these issues and to like have these conversations and not only to have the conversations, but actually, you know, kind of like take action and make and, 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 and do things differently. Um, the level to which I see that happening, like in Ireland, um, I, I find like, you know, very encouraging and it certainly feels, um, like my children, like have, we live in the UK, but like when they are, when we're home, when we're back in Ireland, like they would have completely different experiences like to what I would have had, you know? So it really does seem like there has been, um, there has been quite profound change. Which is good to hear. Now, mm. we're going to go to your favourite play and you're not the first person who has nominated the Playboy of the Western world. So before I ask <laughs> you why it is that you've picked that, let's hear a little bit from a production done by the Druid Theatre in 2004, performed in the Gaiety. And this features Killian Murphy, Anne-Marie Duff and Ashling O'Sullivan. God save you, mister. God save you kindly. Well, aren't you a little smiling fellow? It should have been great and bitter torments that rouse your spirits to a deed of blood. It should. Maybe. It's more than maybe, I'm saying. And it'd soften my heart to see you sitting so simple with your cup and cake. <clears throat> and you fitter to be saying your catechism than slaying your dad. There's talking. When any would see he's fit to be holding his head high with the wonders of the world. Walk on from this, for I not have him tormented and he destroyed Travelin since Tuesday was a week. We'll be walking, surely, when his supper's done. And you'll find we're great company, young fellow. When it's of the like you and me, you'll hear the penny poets singing in an August fair. Did you kill your father? She did not. She hit himself with a worn pick and the rusted poison that corroded his blood, the way he never offered it and died after. That was a sneaky kind of murder that went small glory with the boys itself. If it didn't, maybe I'll know as a widow woman has buried her children and destroyed her man is a wiser comrade for a young lad than a girl that like you who'll go ahead through skeltering after any man would give you a wink upon the road. <laughs> 
sings the Playboy of the Western World. So why'd you pick that, Emma? I just love it so much. Like even listening to it there, like I was just cracking up. Um, yeah, I, I just like I, I just think it's it's hilarious. And I just love the language in it. Like it's just the it's so um, it's so cleverly written um, and it's so it's so irreverent. I know like when it when it first came out, like it caused like a lot of controversy and <laughs> incited riots. Um, I was I've just been teaching in the States um, in a university called Villanova and um, I designed a course that was looking at the it's like a comparative literature course that was looking at the relationship or the parallels between the Irish literary revival and the Harlem Renaissance, which was like a, a black literary movement, very influential black literary movement um, that started out of Harlem. Um, in the early, or in the kind of ni 1920s, um, was kind of like the, the height of it. And there's actually quite a lot of parallels between the two. But um, we looked at um, the Playboy of the Western World was one of, was one of the texts that we, that we did. And um, my students like absolutely loved it as well. And they totally got it, um, which, you know, I wasn't, yeah, I wasn't sure like how it would go down, like with uh, the language and everything. Yeah, but I just think it's brilliant and it, it remains. I first encountered it probably in school and I've just loved it ever since. I saw that production, actually, that one in the Gaiety. Now, you gave us as a favourite movie, a movie I'm not familiar with, and I'm not sure I'm even going to pronounce it properly. Quaidan, is that what the name of the movie is? Uh, yeah, Quaidan. Quaidan. Yeah. What is it? So it is um, a 60s film. It's like an anthology. I really like anthologies. I really like ghost stories. Um, and it's like an anthology film um, comprised of like... Um, three different stories or is it four <laughs> I think it's three um I haven't watched it in a while um from Japanese um mythology okay. um and it is um I lived in Japan for for a few years and um I'm really I was really into it was kind of like a golden age of like like of Japanese Japanese horror and um I look mm, like I love I want to say I love horror films, but I don't love like, I actually hate like kind of like slasher horror films. The reason I like Japanese horror films, J-horror so much is because um, it's more kind of like ghost stories and it's more, it's often them mixing like their very rich and like very alive, like um, ancient mythology, um, kind of fusing that like with the, with the modern world and making these like really kind of like creepy films but yeah Kwaidan is um I think it means strange things or eerie things I think that's what the translation is and um, it's just like very stylized like very very beautiful and um very atmospheric and um and and, and pretty creepy with like a lot of mythology so like yeah a lot of folklore rather um so yeah very up my street Let's move to television. We always ask our guests to nominate something from childhood. You've gone for something I have to admit I'm not familiar with. Degrassi Junior High? Yeah, Degrassi Junior High. It was like um, a high school drama. It was set in, um, I think it's in Toronto. It's set in um, Canada anyway. And it was just kind of like the trials and tribulations of these like Canadian high schoolers and I was just like obsessed with it when I was a kid yeah probably when I was about was it around the Madonna phase probably maybe a little bit after then probably when I was about 10 and um I got these like I got these like Degrassi Junior High sweaters like printed and like just used to wear them and um I just really wanted to go to Degrassi Junior High um there's 
Degrassi Junior High, The Next Generation, which I think is like a little bit better known because Drake, the rapper, was one of the actors in it. But that's um, that's kind of where like Drake kind of first, you know, came to prominence. But the version of it that I watched um, was the earlier iteration. So no Drake. Um, but yeah, that was that was my that was my show when I was a kid. And as an adult, you've chosen Atlanta. Tell us about that. Yes. So Atlanta is um, an American TV series uh, written and like made by Donald Glover. Um, and he also he also stars in it. Um, it's set in Atlanta, which is um, a city. So I was born in Dublin, but when I was very pretty much like immediately after that, we moved to Atlanta um, and I lived there for the first few years of my life. And I still have like a lot of family there. And I used to spend a lot of time there as a teenager. So it's set in Atlanta, um, which is like a city that I have this connection with. Um, but it's also just like very surreal. And he actually draws on a lot of like horror kind of tropes unexpectedly, I think, um, within, with, within, within it. So it might be akin, increasingly it's becoming, you know, you know, a little bit kind of like maybe Jordan Peely or like Black Mirror-esque, but still like very uniquely its own thing. But, um, yeah, I just find it like hilarious and clever and surreal and absurd. And yeah, I just think it's like a, a brilliant TV show. We have a clip from it in which the show's protagonist, Aaron, played by Donald Glover, as you mentioned. He talks to Darius, played by Lakeit Stanfield, that his parents are travelling to Florida, who then warns him of the fictional villain Florida Man. How's your parents? Good. Good. They're driving to Florida right now to visit my uncle who's dying. Oh, Florida, just make sure you tell them to watch out for Florida, man. What's Florida, man? Florida, man, is responsible for a large percentage of abnormal incidents that occur in Florida. Think of him as a alt-right Johnny Appleseed. No one knows his true identity, date of birth, what he looks like. That's why headlines always say Florida Man. Florida Man shoots unarmed black teenager. Florida Man bursts into ex's delivery room and fights new boyfriend as she's given birth. Florida Man steals a car. Goes to checkers. Florida Man beats a flamingo to death. Florida Man found eating another man's face. No. Yes. No. Yes, it's true. No. Him? The state government cahoots. Why would anyone even do that? <laughs> to prevent black people from coming to and or registering to vote in Florida, Ern. Come on. Of course. Yeah. You want to turn the music back on? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Okay. That's Atlanta. <laughs> okay, that sounds very interesting. <laughs> Tell me, do you listen to many podcasts? And the reason I ask, as I know, as I mentioned earlier, you're doing your new uh, limited edition podcast series, Driving Progress, where you mm -hmm. talk to people about progress. Do you listen to many podcasts? Yeah, I do listen to a fair few, I have to say, yeah. Okay, nothing that you have to mind that you could recommend? Oh, God. Um, yeah, so the, mo the, the one I've just been listening to uh, most recently is um, 
Lucy Worsley's one. Uh, it's like a BBC Sounds one where she's looking at um, women, like female murderers, like from the last century, but looking at them kind of through like a contemporary and kind of like looking at the cases through like a contemporary and feminist lens. It's... Um, yeah, it's pretty interesting. I don't really like do, I'm not really into like true crime because like it just is like, yeah, it's just like I was saying, I don't like horror that's like, you know, gory or kind of like slashery or anything. Um, but this is a very interesting kind of interpretation of true crime, looking at these like historic cases through a contemporary, um, yeah, contemporary feminist lens. Okay, a final one. Your cultural buried treasure, something like a book or a movie, a poem, a painting, something you believe that people should know more about. And you've picked for us a musical which was turned into a movie. Jesus Christ, superstar. Why have you picked that? So I have to be like very clear and very specific in that it's not just like this any stage production of Jesus Christ Superstar and it's not even any other like film production. It's very specifically the 1973 film version um, that I that I love. I grew up I grew up watching it. I, I, I think I saw it first when I was about six or seven and it's just been like a lifelong like I just I always feel like everyone grew up watching it and then I realized that like no one knows it and um yeah it's just like this very like 70s um I think the I think the um theater company the theater group that um uh that, that are like all cast in the um that are cast in the film it's just like they're just these like total 70s like hippies and um they are a racially mixed cast, which is like really like unusual for the time. And um, the performances are just brilliant. Like I've heard the songs sung, I've heard other versions of the song sung or like um, like other like adaptations of it. And I'm not like really into them, but these particular actors singing, it's just perfect. It's just like the perfect combination. Absolutely love it. And in this story, Judas is actually in this interpretation like Judas is actually the kind of main character and kind of the hero it kind of like the anti-hero um and Judas was played by this guy called Carl Anderson um this like black American guy who do you know what like it wasn't like he was my first crush or anything I feel like <laughs> I just I don't know. I just loved him. Like, I just loved him when I was a kid. And um, yeah, I just think I still listen to those songs. I still listen to those songs like really regularly. So, yeah. We have a clip. This is King Herod's song from that edition of Jesus Christ Superstar. Jesus, I am overjoyed to meet you face to face. You've been getting quite a name all around the place healing cripples raising from the dead now i understand your god at least that's what you've said so you're the great Jesus Christ Prove to me that you're divine Change my water into wine That's all you need to Then I'll know it's all true Come on, King of the Jews Jesus, you just won't believe The hit you've made around here You are all we talk about You're the wonder of the year Oh, what a 
that's all a lie. Still, I'm sure that you can rock the cynics if you try. So if you want the Christ, yes, the great Jesus Christ, prove to me that you're no fool. Walk across my swimming pool. If you do that for me, then I'll let you go. Okay, Emma, I'd never heard that before. I'm not quite sure what to make of it. <laughs> yeah, so that wouldn't be my that wouldn't be like my choice of song out of the film, <laughs> to be fair. And that's that that song isn't representative of the types of music in the rest of the film either. <laughs> so don't okay. make your don't base your opinion on that. All right, listen, still, it's been great having you with us on the Culture Club. Emma DeBerry, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Yeah, thanks a million. I really enjoyed that. The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Today FM. It all happens here.